up this morning. And uh, if you are, in, are watching online, we're glad that you're joining us. <clears throat> uh, I just want to just uh, say it's good to be home. It's good to be home. After being out on vacation, we had a good time. And so appreciate everybody that stepped in. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please grab one from the seat rack in front of you. Be turning to the book or to page 96. Uh, and uh, if you have a, a Bible and you're used to using that, you'll be in the second book of uh, the book called Exodus, Exodus chapter 10 this morning, as uh, we pick up our study of getting out of Egypt and talking about the war for worship this morning. We're going to be learning from locusts. So as many of you know, we were out last week and uh, we had a great time uh, visiting the Smoky Mountains. What one? Did I hear you? Wow, that was weird. But anyway, uh, we had a great time visiting the Smoky Mountains, and uh, it was a good time. And it was a good time to be away for just a little bit. It was refreshing, and I appreciate the prayers and the liberty you all afford us to be able to get away like that. And uh, I also appreciate those who stood in the gap uh, while we were out. Uh, we had um, uh, I, the HBF's in great hands. I mean, we have a good pastoral team, good leadership, good body of Christ. You guys are uh, I'm not one of those guys that when I leave, I'm like, oh, no, the wheels are going to come off the wagon. Uh, I don't know that you all need me, so I'm glad that you have me here. It's, re- it's really good to be here. And I know Craig Warner did a great job preaching last week. I appreciate him coming in as he sacrificed his Father's Day to come and invest in our children's ministry and then preach a great Father's Day message. And I uh, appreciate everything that Craig had to say and all that he invested in us on Father's Day last week. So since I missed you last week, I do want to just... Wish you fathers a happy Father's Day in person, and uh, I do really think it's so important that we honor, uh, especially in these days, mothers and fathers. And I gave you my little Father's Day primer a week before that, so you got a shot across the bow there. So uh, as we get into the Word of God this morning, it's hard to believe it's already been nearly a month since our last message from Exodus. Uh, And so in June, we've been very busy with uh, Church in the Park, uh, the conclusion of Christ Soccer Academy, the uh, the uh, shield ceremony for uh, the kingdom seekers, and uh, and then, of course, Father's Day. So if you're joining us maybe for the first time uh, and you're wondering, what are we doing here? Well, we're working through the book of Exodus and the sermon series that uh, I've titled Getting Out of Egypt. Obviously, that's what Exodus is about, getting out of Egypt. It's exiting Egypt and how God got Israel out of Egypt. And we see a lot of, of uh, mighty uh, parallels between God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and our own deliverance from the power of sin and death. So this series is designed to help us prepare uh, for our own departure from this planet. Whether you, uh, you know, drop dead and have to go six feet under or God comes immediately before I get this message done and catches us away, we need to be prepared uh, for our departure. And this morning, uh, we'll enter back into the war for worship between Pharaoh and Moses as God is using Moses to lead Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, to worship God in obedience. And to this point, what we've seen uh, is that God is, has brought these seven plagues upon Israel. Today we'll look at the eighth plague of locusts. And the first plague was the, turning the water into blood. Uh, and, of course, the second plague was those frogs that were brought upon Pharaoh's house, his bed, and all of Egypt. And then God sent lice upon all Egypt, and then he sent flies upon the Egyptians, but he segregated out the children of Israel uh, down in Goshen, and then the fifth was the moraine upon all the cattle, and then the boils, and then the fiery hail and thunder. And you would think by seven plagues, right, a perfect number, it would be done. Uh, but it isn't. It isn't. We still uh, have a couple more to go before God pulls Israel out of Egypt permanently. And we see, the as we, as we saw at the end of May, Moses and Aaron were able to traverse uh, in the previous chapter, in Exodus chapter 9, through the the fiery hail and all of that judgment that was coming down. They were able to walk through that, have a meeting with Pharaoh, walk back outside the city, and then have God bring that that judgment to a stop on that seventh plague. And that leads us to where we are this morning. You would think after something that incredible that that Pharaoh would you know soften his heart, but we know from the text in in the in the verse thirty five of chapter nine it says the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So that leads us to our text this morning. And I pray that our hearts this morning would not be hard, that our hearts would be soft. And by the way, hey, Mark, thanks for, for handing that out. I just, as before Mark leaves the room, if you did not get a handout and you want one, 
Uh, I was tardy to getting those out this morning. If you didn't get a handout, just put your hand in the air, wave it like you do care at Mark or one of the ushers, and they will come around and get that to you. Leave it up for them so they can see you. I see you back there, man. It's good to see you. Uh, so Tom's back there waving in the air because he does care. So I like that. All right, so just leave that up, and they, they will get that handout to you. Uh, forgive me if you did not get one of those. All right, so let's stand in honor of God's word. We're going to look at Exodus, and I pray that our hearts are not hard this morning, that they're tender, and uh, they're able to to uh, absorb the word of God, unlike Moses, who is obviously getting harder and harder as we continue. Exodus chapter 10, let's look at verses 1 through 20 this morning, and then we'll break into this message. It says in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and that my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else... If thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coasts. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail. And shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses and and the house of all thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And they have turned, and he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? Verse 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters and with our flocks and with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, uh, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for, for that ye did desire. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand over the land of Egypt, for the locusts that uh, they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat the er- every herb of the land, even all the, the hail that hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that, that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they before they uh, <clears throat> before them. There were no such locusts as they <clears throat> as they neither after them shall be such. But they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they did eat the herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs. Of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive I pray thee my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. But the, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus this morning. He is alive. He is well. Uh, he is our Savior. And we are so thankful that you sent him and to die on the cross in our place. We're thankful for the word that you've entrusted to us to impart to other people, uh, including our own children and our, and our children's children. Lord, we're thankful for the privilege of gathering freely this morning, and we just uh, praise you for the, the opportunity that you give us to serve you today. Thank you, Lord, for the, the liberty that you've set, given us and set us free with through the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the word of God this morning. I pray, God, that you quicken your word this morning as we get into this message. Help us to learn some lessons 
from the locusts. We thank you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning I've titled the, the message, of course, Lessons from Locusts. And the first time we find the word locusts uh, or locusts in the scripture is in the text we just read. So it's the first mention. And this point, <clears throat> to this point, God has been gracious and merciful in the judgments that he's brought upon Egypt. And we see here that the locusts that, that God, uh, we see that with the locusts, God is patient uh, as, he's, as he's bringing this, uh, this, this judgment full circle. And he could have destroyed Israel in, in a moment, of course, as we've talked about in the past. But he chooses to continue to, to uh, kind of stretch this out. Uh, he, he's attacked the wheat and the rye. And he, but he's, he, uh, I'm sorry, he didn't attack the weak and the rye, the, the rye. He's coming back around now and destroying everything, which would include the wheat and the rye. So uh, under the, the hail and the, the fiery hail, uh, of course, not all the crops were destroyed because some were in the ground. The wheat and the rye, which they actually eat, um, was not out of the ground. So God was being gracious and merciful. Uh, but here we see that he's coming full bore with these locusts, and it will destroy everything as well as the trees. In verse nine, or in chapter nine, and verse thirty-one, the Bible says, "And the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was was bold, and the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up." So, with this judgment that comes with the locusts, God is bringing a full judgment on on their food supply, and it's a serious. And it's a thank you. Thanks for reading my mind. I was needing that. <clears throat> it's a serious judgment, of course, if you don't have food to eat. So flax and barley were used for the, the clothing and uh, their, their beverages, but the wheat and the rye were used for their food staples. And so this was a big judgment that was coming upon, uh, upon them. As we saw, the, the leaders, the servants uh, around Pharaoh were like, man, what are you doing, Pharaoh? Let these people go because you're killing us here. Egypt is dying. You need, to let, you need to let them go. Of course, and he calls them back in, as we saw, and, and he tries to get them to compromise and so we read in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 7 that Pharaoh's servants, um, when they were questioning them, uh, they, they really, they were clearly seeing that God was destroying their nation. Their gods were impotent to stop Moses, uh, that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses was superior, and yet Pharaoh just was blinded. He was blinded because of the hardness of his heart, and he was willing to allow everything to be destroyed because of that. And so in all this judgment, God reveals three key things that we can walk away with uh, in these first 20 verses of Exodus chapter 10. So this morning we'll look at those things. The first one is, is that our story of redemption is to have a generational impact. The second thing we'll see is that our command to worship God is unconditional. And the third thing that we're going to see is the power of God's word uh, is undeniable. Even though uh, Pharaoh is missing it, uh, it's undeniable. So point one, our story of redemption is to have generational impact. I could park the car and just spend the rest of our time in these first two verses, uh, but I'm going to try not to do that. But God reveals the purpose of his patience with Pharaoh and his servants in these first couple of verses. Uh, he has more plagues to pour out on the hearts of Pharaoh and his servants. He tells them in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs before him. And I want, and then he says, I want to, I want to go and can, I want you, Moses, to go and confront Pharaoh because this work needs to be repeated uh, in this, to your sons and your sons' sons. I need you to repeat what I'm doing to the generations to follow. So in verse two, he says, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and that my signs which I have done among them, that they may know how that I am the Lord. So all of this judgment that's coming on Pharaoh isn't just about what's happening to Pharaoh. It's actually about God building a resume of sorts, a, a storyline that, that Moses and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren can look back on. This is meant to be an epic story, and it is. A few weeks ago I mentioned that Cecil B. DeMille, you know, he cashed in on that when the, when the talking movies came. Uh, he created, you know, one of the biggest movies ever was the Ten Commandments. Why? Because that story is meant to travel through history. So just a little word to the wise. If you want to make money off the Bible, don't do that, by the way. Uh, but that, 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 that's, I mean, Cecil B. DeMille hit a home run because uh, God is going to magnify that story to teach every generation 
of his deliverance, but also his judgment. And so we know that there will come a time when Satan, who was a, was the anointed cherub in Exodus twenty eight fourteen, will also um, he will also be judged. At this point, God's telling Moses that it's not about changing Pharaoh's heart. It's about securing your grandchildren's heart and the generations to come. Moses, this, this is a drill, right? And we don't see Moses getting frustrated. Moses is willing to go in and out, back and forth, doing what he's told. And nobody at this point thinks Pharaoh is actually going to have a change of heart. So what's it all about? Well, the purpose is, as God lays it out, is for us to have a story to talk about so we understand uh, the power of God over the forces of darkness, over these pagan gods of this world. And this is really important that, that Moses gets this, that all the children of Israel get this, because they're commanded to tell this to their children and their children's children. As a matter of fact, we're doing this this morning. We're doing this the series this morning, in essence, for the very same reason. God needs this story told because it's important for us to understand some of these principles. And I just touched on the cherub, right? There's a fallen cherub, a cherub that was, was, was prouder than Pharaoh, right? A, 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 a creature that was meant to bring glory to God, but wouldn't. And after going a few rounds with God, uh, he will be transformed into a man, uh, just like every other man. And he's going he's gonna to have incredible consequences to his pride. So there's an incredible lesson here that we all need to learn from Pharaoh about pride and humility and being humble. In Isaiah 14, uh, a very familiar passage to, to most of us, the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? There was a time in which Lucifer was this light-bearing cherub, right, son of the morning. He was illuminated. He was meant to, to bring glory to God. That's what God created him for. He didn't create him to destroy him. But yet we know the story. He, he was lifted up in his pride, right? The five I wills, he will exalt his, his throne, all of those things in Isaiah 14. And that cherub that's mentioned in, in Ezekiel 28, uh, as we get to the, down the text in Isaiah 14 and verse 16, God pronounces what's going to happen to him. It says, They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, This is the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake the kingdoms. People are going to look at, there's going to come a day, and we're part of that prophecy, when after the, at the end of the millennium, Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, you know what? He, we're going to look at that guy and go, is this the guy that caused all this trouble? This guy, right? He's no longer a cherub. He's no longer illuminating anything. He's going to actually give up his estate and, and become a man in the middle of the tribulation. And he's going to, he's going to be bound uh, for a thousand years. And eventually he's going to become like a worm, big worm, like a serpent. But he'll be like a worm, just like every other sinner that dies and spends eternity separated from God because of pride. They will be like a worm, it says in, in the book of Mark, like it says in Isaiah. And the worm dieth not, no arms, no legs, and eternal torment. That is what the Bible teaches. That is what the Bible says happens to those who will not humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Conversely, right, what a deliverance we have in Jesus. And Jesus came to this world to save us and redeem us from that. And he wants us to tell the story of redemption because it needs to be passed to every generation. This morning I was just watching a video about, uh, from a historian and just how miraculous, and I, and I agree with this historian, how miraculous it is that the church has survived at this point with all the persecution, with all the, all the things designed against the church, but yet she has prevailed. Why? Because God is making us part of his redemption story. When we preach the gospel, when we go out and spark in the park or church in the park or Christ Soccer Academy or whatever we're doing, when we're sending Bibles here and there, when we're taking missions trips, all those things are part of us taking that story of Jesus Christ, which is not just a story, it's an accurate accounting of, of redemption of mankind, and we're sharing that with not just the lost, but we're also demonstrating that to our children and our grandchildren, both spiritually and physically. The story of our redemption is so profound and powerful that we should be compelled to share it with every generation to follow. And that's really what God is saying in, the, in verse 2 to Moses. It's like, Moses, this is, an important, uh, this is an important piece of history. This is so epic that you're going to share it with everybody uh, down your lineage, and it's going to bring honor and glory to me. Later in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, 
Uh, it says in verse 20, And when, the, when thy son asketh thee in a time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? You know, we could summarize that, right? In the Old Testament, of course, they had the, the Torah, the five books of the law. But we could summarize that now with the, with the word, right? When, you, when our kids ask us, you know, what is up with this? What's up with this, this 66 books? What's up with this Bible that you have, that you, Dad, that you're always preaching about, that you're always talking about, Mom, that you're always uh, browbeating me with, right? What, what is this all about? Well, good, good questions. I'm glad you asked. Deuteronomy 6.20, when they ask these questions, why did God give us these commandments? Then shalt thou say unto thy son, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. Never to forget that. We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. Now, of course, we know that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. And his hand is not short that it cannot save. So even in that, that giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and he's explaining uh, the, the, the deliverance from Egypt, what we have is a shadow of, of the man, the Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, the hand of God that is not short that it cannot save, that has come to this planet and redeemed us from the curse of the law by dying on the cross for our sins. That is our redemption story. That is the redemption story. And that's the story that we pass on from generation to generation. And we got to remember that without Jesus Christ, we were in bondage. And even if you're in bondage, if you have Jesus Christ, you're not. I don't know how that works, but that's what the Bible says. Right? Whether bond or free, it doesn't matter. In Christ, you're a new creature. Whether bond or free, you are free in Christ. You are the Lord's servant if you're free. And if you're bound, you're free uh, because you can serve the Lord. God has this thing worked out. The story of Christ's work on the cross should intersect with our personal story of redemption if you're biblically born again. So practically, it's already time to do some application. We don't have to wait to the altar call. How does your story of redemption intersect with the story of redemption? You see, we live in a religious culture. We live in a church culture, a, a, a culture where the Bible is, is somewhat uh, common knowledge. It's becoming less and less no, uh, common knowledge as the days go into darkness. But but a lot of people, even in our church, they, they may have grown up in church. They may have been about the story of redemption. But does your life intersect? Was there a time in your life where you called upon the name of the Lord? You came out of the bondage of sin and death. You came out of Egypt. In a spiritual sense, you came out of this world and were born again and have a relationship with Christ. If there's not a day, an hour, a moment, you may not you may not be like me. I know the exact date and I remember the moment I got saved. I mean, it was it was it was it it rocked me. I still rehearse it over and over because the redemption that Jesus Christ offered intersected with me March 25th, 1987. Now, if you do not have a time in your life where you've come to that place where you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you believe it more than the air that you breathe, that he rose again the third day and he's alive right now, and that he's coming back and he's calling all men everywhere to repent, he wants you to change your heart and mind and call upon his name. It's really simple. A child can get a hold of that. But the humble heart is the key. It's not the knowledge up here. It's the condition of the heart soil. Pharaoh would not receive redemption, and he wouldn't give redemption. He wouldn't give grace, and he wouldn't receive, and he wasn't going to receive any grace because his heart was hard. He was full of pride. He was not a humble man. But to the humble, God will grant forgiveness of sin. And man, I tell you, in the world that we live in today, our story of redemption better line up with the one way, truth, and life. Because you can go to Islam and try to find a works-based redemption story. You can go to, to Rome and they'll give you a workspace redemption story. You can go to, to uh, all the other isms of this world. They'll give you a workspace redemption story. Everybody will keep you working and keep you jogging on the treadmill of good works or whatever to try to get that brass ring of redemption. But only Jesus Christ has already delivered us. It's through his finished work on the cross. And there has to be a time in our life where we quit trying and we simply die. And our story is that of being quickened, brought to life through the power of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Is your story his story? And if not, why not?
You really need to make that your story today. You can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And if it is, you have a testimony that goes all the way back to the finished work of Christ. And get this word, that was wrought on the cross. Notice in the text, as you look down in here uh, in verse 2, he says this. He says, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt. Wrought. What does that word mean, wrought? Well, that word is interesting to me. I was checking that out. Um, in the text here in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 2, that, that word wrought is specific to the merging of, of metal. Like if you look up the word wrought, it has the implication of, of merging metal. We're, we're accustomed to cast iron, right? But you've also, from around here, we're familiar with blacksmith work and all of those things where people work with metal and they beat it, they form it, they merge it together. When you visit Silver Dollar City, you'll see the blacksmith, right? They'll heat up that metal and they'll beat that metal and they'll form that metal into various artifacts that can be useful. Wrought metal is a metal that is merged through the through that same process. It's it's beaten and it's and it's it's uh, transformed into what uh, its ultimate outcome is supposed to be. God is using Pharaoh's hard heart as an anvil of sorts to forge Israel into a mighty nation. This process hasn't been easy on Israel, but God is using the hardness of Pharaoh like an anvil. As these plagues keep coming, man, God is perfecting, and he's doing a good work in the nation of Israel, and he's simply using that hard heart of Pharaoh as a stabilizing force to perfect his people Israel to get them ready for the rigors of the wilderness and their eventual victory in the promised land. Same thing happens with us, beloved. Hey, there are difficulties in this life. I mean, Paul said it. Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That doesn't mean you give up or you throw your hands in the air. You just know that all of those things, Roman, the Bible also tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that call according to his purpose in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, right? So we understand that no matter what comes in this life, man, God is using that for our good because we have a good, good father. We just sang about that. We were just down in, in uh, Tennessee last week. And uh, in Pigeon Forge, I recommend you go there sometime if you've never been there. It's interesting. And they had, a, they had a replica of the spikes that they used to crucify Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, these dudes were big. You, you say nailed him to the cross, but these were, like, these were bigger than railroad spikes. They were big. And, and so we were look, I was looking at those, and they were enormous, large pieces of sharpened rods of iron, uh, that were used to, to nail Jesus to the cross. The beating that went on. You know what was happening? Our redemption was being pounded out on the cross. Salvation is, is given, a gift freely given uh, when we call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus. However, it was a mighty, mighty work of redemption that Jesus wrought on the cross. As literally, his body was pounded to a tree so he could redeem us it's amazing to, to consider the love of god and the redemption that's offered through the sacrifice of his son and so the importance point b of re- repeating the mighty works of god to the next generation is the essence of discipleship it's the essence of discipleship in deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9 the bible says only take heed to thyself and, and to keep thy soul diligently diligently lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen Unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them to thy sons and to thy sons' sons. Sounds a lot like what we just read in Exodus when God is speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 2. It also sounds a lot like what Paul is talking to his son in the Lord Timothy about in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we know that, that Timothy was not Paul's biological son. He was his disciple, but he calls him his son. Why? Because it's his son in the Lord. They, they had a relationship. Discipleship can be like that. It's almost like a father-son relationship. He says, hey, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't try to work it up yourself. Rest in who Jesus Christ is. Rest in his finished work. Verse 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You see, beloved, we are stewards 
We are stewards of this this record of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. This is the story. The message of the kingdom is contained herein. This is this is what we are entrusted with. This is the record of who God is. This is the word of God. And I tell you, it's under attack and it's been under attack. It will continue to be under attack. And guess who is stewarding this? You are and I am. God has chosen us as clay vessels that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to carry forth this testimony to the next generation. Making disciples is, in essence, entrusting the next generation with the precious story of redemption. The Bible is obviously the the story we're charged to to hand down from generation to generation. However, we're not charged to simply, like, take my Bible, which, like, in my will, I've I've got Bibles and they're willed to my kids. So Elizabeth gets this Bible, Samuel gets that Bible, Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Just handing my child a Bible. Here you go. I mean, praise God we live in a country where you can hand your child a Bible and say, here you go. That came at a great cost to many people. But here we are. What does God really want us to do? Well, he, he needs us to, to live it out. He needs us to be good stewards of what we have. Not, can you show your child in the Bible the story yourself? What can you reveal to your children? Whether they're adults or children, what can you reveal to others about the story of redemption? Can you walk someone through the plan of salvation? Can you demonstrate how this Bible is rightly divided? Can you talk about the Bible with some knowledge of, of understanding because God is steward, it's so precious to you. You know more about this than you do your vocation. You know more about this than you do your job. You know more about this than anything else because it is the most important thing there is to know. What are we leaving our children? We're called and we're charged to take the Bible and model it to the next generation. Are we living out what is written of us? Are we full of faith? Will our children and our grandchildren, will our disciples see that? Will they see the power of God wrought, worked out in our lives? Do they see a change or do they understand the store of redemption? I mean, even as we were on vacation, I was talking to my kids about this and that. And there's aspects of my story, not of who I am now, but who I was. They don't know all of that. And at a time that's right, I tell them a little piece here, a little piece there. Why? So they can understand the mighty work that God has wrought. Man, you can grow up in a church. That doesn't mean that God cannot wrought a mighty work in you. Sometimes Christians are like, yeah, I don't have this gnarly testimony of all the things I used to do. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, it's not about that. The best testimony is what God has saved you from. If you have a testimony, I got saved at seven, I got baptized at eight, and I served the Lord faithfully till this day, that is the best testimony ever. That should not be looked at as, oh, well, there's not much there. No, there's everything there. That's what we should all want. That's the story of redemption. Where do you get that kind of life? You get it from Jesus. It's not because they're a good person. It's not. People are not good by nature. We're sinners. It's because Jesus Christ is in them and has done a good work. God has changed them from the inside out. What a beautiful testimony. So what are are you leaving to your children and your grandchildren? Can you articulate the story of redemption? And does it have a tangible impact on your life? These are the questions that verse 2 leaves me with. Can, you cannot make a disciple. Beloved, you cannot make a disciple if you are not discipled. You cannot teach someone else what you've never gotten. Right? You're not going to disciple others if you've never been disciplined, if you've never been taught. If you don't understand the Bible yourself, you cannot share it. You, I know you're like me. You talk to people that think they know stuff about the Bible, and you know they're blissfully ignorant. You know, and they shoot off the lip about stuff, and they don't know anything about the Bible. Why? Because they've never been taught, or they've never taken the time when the opportunity was available and presented to learn. Now, that's not, hopefully, the attitude that we have in this church. We're all about disciples. You cannot make a disciple if you haven't been one. You cannot follow, uh, <clears throat> you cannot follow the Son of God unless you're born again. Born again of the Spirit of God. So maybe today you need to see God deliver you in a mighty way through the power of Jesus Christ. HBF exists to give you to give you something that you can hand down to the next generation. So let me make it super practical. Just structurally in our church. 
The first step is simply discipleship one. And if your life's not in order and you can't, like, you can't function in this life because of sin and this and that, we have life issues. Life issues, we will actually take you where you're at and we will get the word right where you're at until you can get yourself in a situation to get involved in discipleship one. Another thing you can do is invest in the children, children's ministry. You can invest in others and you can get involved in discipleship too. And get equipped in the word of God to do the work of ministry. Some of you need to sign up and get involved in HBI. That's the the apex of our discipleship process. Now, discipleship is meant to be come to a conclusion, a a place where you grow to the point of maturation. I should say that rather. And then it goes on into you reproducing yourself in others. So it never ends because you're reproducing Christ in others. But there's a point where you're responsible for the information and the mission that God's given you. That next generation has to say, you know what, I'm taking this on, and I'm going to invest it in the next generation. And the next generation has to say, you know what, I'm owning this story of redemption, and I'm taking it on, and I'm going to give it to the next generation. And that's been happening consistently since those 12 uh, disciples became apostles, and the apostle Paul got the gospel to the Gentiles. And it is here today at at HBF, we can bring you in to the process of discipleship. And so what does that look like? Well, let me do this. If you have been discipled, just just stand in, through our discipleship process. D1, just stand where you are. I just kind of want to look around. So all these folks have been through our discipleship one. Or and If you're in discipleship one, go ahead and take a stand too. If you're in it, all right. So there's D1. I know, sorry to make you uncomfortable. All right, so these folks here have all been, got the basics of the Bible laid out or they're in the process of doing that. <clears throat> and, and so... What that really means then is that they are also now, uh, as they as they as they take that information in, all of y'all, you're like you're like deputized, right? Put the little badge on your chest because that information has been given to you. Why? So you can sit on it until Jesus comes. No, no, no. These folks here are now responsible for getting it where it needs to go on time. You may be seated. Thank you for that illustration. So we're all responsible to take what we've learned and rehearse it in the ears of our children, both physically and spiritually. So if you stood up in that group, then God has, this is messages for you. You have the responsibility to take what God gives you in your daily devotion, in the preaching that you hear, and, and be consistently uh, working that, that, that information into the next generation. Not just through formal discipleship, but just like Deuteronomy 6 talks about. Through our life, people should see that this book is real to us in our day-to-day walk, right? So I remember years ago, Bob, Bol- Bob Bolkin's not here today, but he was present. I was in my basement. They were helping me do uh, do uh, the, the electrical lighting. And uh, Bob, I was using, Bob has this little platform that you stand on. Uh, just gets you about, I don't know, 15 inches off the floor. It's just right in an eight-foot ceiling. So you're just working along, you know. Anyway, I get up on this platform, <clears throat> and I get a little, little bit on one side of it. And, I, and it just flips on me, on its side. And so then I come down right on my shin. I mean, bam, right, all my weight right on that shin. And I'm done. I mean, I, it was literally, it was bruised for years. Amy's a witness to this. It, the front of my shin was purple for like five years. And uh, it was bad. And I'm like, and everybody stops. You know how that is. They're like, oh, and you, you know Bob Bolkin. Oh, are you okay, brother? You know, <laughs> and uh, they're checking on me and everything. And after they realize I'm, I'm, I'm going to live, you know, and I'm trying to be a tough guy and shake it off and everything. Um, my, my, I felt like my leg was going, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Bob says, I know you're a Christian because you didn't cuss. <laughs> and you know, as funny as that is, it's true. Because that was something, I, when I was lost, I did a lot of. I, w- I cursed like a sailor. And so when I got saved, now I don't know your testimony. This is my testimony. You can have your own testimony. But God took that out of my mouth. It's just not something I have to do or want to do. Or even if I fall and hit my shin, it just does, it's not there anymore. What is that? That's not because I'm trying. That's because God did that. Now, I wish everything was like that in my spiritual walk because it's not. There's other things that are much harder to deal with. For me, right, that was just something that God took care of. He took care of it. God does those things. He, he rots a work in your life that other people can see. 
uh, when difficult times come, they say, wow, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. What is that difference? Well, they're really good people. No, no, no. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I literally have to correct people sometimes. I'm like, no, I'm not that nice. Ask Amy. I'm not, I'm not that nice, am I? If it wasn't for Jesus. She's like, well, you're nice enough. But I cannot be nice if it wasn't for Jesus. I'd be a miserable mess. But it's Jesus, right? If he makes you kind and gentle and all the fruit of the Spirit, give him the glory. Give him the credit. Point back to this book. Point back to his Spirit. Because that is the source of the power. Point C. I've got to keep moving because I'm over time. So Jesus is the only sign we need. You notice he talks about signs here. I want to straighten this out and hit this before we close. In Exodus chapter 10 and verse 2, he says, And, and that thou mayest tell, of, uh, tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. It's worth noting that the Jews require a sign. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, many of you know this verse, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And that's a very important principle and, and, and reality in the Bible. From the inception of Israel's birth, God used signs to confirm his words to Israel. In Jesus' public ministry, he showed them sign after sign, confirming that he was indeed the Messiah. But like Pharaoh, the heart of the Jewish leadership was hardened to the signs that Jesus and his disciples provided. Even after Jesus died and resurrected, he allowed his apostles to produce sign after sign to the Jewish leadership to verify uh, that they were indeed part of the ministry of Jesus Christ and that they were bona fide apostles of Jesus. And, of course, uh, many of their hearts continued to be hardened. Eventually, in Jesus' public ministry, he grew weary of Israel's rejection and tells them twice that the only sign that he's going to give them is the sign of Jonas. And the sign uh, has a, a double meaning. And when I say Jonas, he's meaning Jonah. On one edge of that sign is the salvation that's pictured through Jesus Christ. Uh, and the other side is the judgment upon those who reject Jesus. And I'm not just making that up. I, I think on the screen you'll have the verse in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus sets this forth. He says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So Jesus is the one saying, you know what, I'm, I'm done with the signs. I'm going to give you one sign. It's, this prophet, it's the sign of the prophet Jonas, which is Jonah. Verse 40. For as Jonah, uh, or Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you want a sign, just watch me die and resurrect. Right? That's the sign that Jesus needs everybody to see. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation. Notice we're talking about generations now. And, and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So now he goes back to this issue. And he's not just talking about three days and three nights. And, of course, he's dealing, obviously, with Jesus uh, after he conquered sin and death on the cross. He was three days and three nights preaching the captivities and led captivity, cap, preaching to the captives in, in hell. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Ephesians tells us that, right? So we get that part. But then he turns that that sword on the other side and he says hey by the way people that that won't receive this sign man they're going to look awful bad when jonas a reluctant missionary rolls into town and just preaches hey repent and everybody has a massive revival in in uh, in nineveh man what's your excuse going to be after sign after sign after sign after the resurrection of the son of man and you reject it you reject the sign that jesus christ came to this earth and then he goes on to say that, yeah, greater than Jonah is here. Of course, Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with, it, with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Twice Jesus is saying, hey, I just want to let you all know I'm better than the prophets. I'm better than Jonas. I'm better than King Solomon. Why? Because, well, I'm Jesus. I'm the son of God. And if if... The queen of Sheba would roll up out of some Gentile nation out of, of Africa and show up in Jerusalem and, and bow down before Solomon and say, Great is the Lord God Almighty, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of the wisdom and the magnitude and the glory of this kingdom. 
And, and if, if Ninevites up here in Assyria would, 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 would have this, this reluctant missionary roll into town and say, repent, and they all come to repent and, and come to find uh, grace in the eyes of God Almighty, man, what judgment is upon you when the Messiah, the God of the universe, shows up and he puts himself out there and you reject it? The same judgment that Pharaoh is going to face. The same judgment that many in Israel face at the first coming is the same judgment that many, even today, under the sound of my voice, could be facing if you have not received the gospel of God. There's two sides to that. Jesus is pointing out that Gentile queen of Sheba had the discernment, the understanding to realize that, whoa, I should receive this God. Later, when the Pharisees and Sadducees demanded signs of Jesus, he repeated the same words back to these wicked leaders of Israel. He says in Matthew 16, 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall, be no, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. He was done. I'm done with you Pharisees. I'm done with you Sadducees. I'm not, I know that I'm not dancing when you pipe. Just watch. I'm going to give you a sign. It's my death, burial, and resurrection. Now, of course, there's some guys like Nicodemus who got it. They received it, but many did not. And this is an important lesson for us. You see, signs are, are not for people who Jesus... <clears throat> I'm sorry. Signs are, are not for people who know who Jesus is, but for people who don't. Think about that. Signs are not for people who know where Jesus is, but for people who don't. Like if you already, if you're in Harrisonville this morning, you don't need a sign to get here. Right? You only need a sign when you're trying to travel somewhere and you don't know where it's at. God gives you a sign. But people who know Jesus don't need a sign because you know Jesus. Right? You've arrived. And he's leading everybody that saying, hey, guys, you don't need any more signs because I'm here. Jesus has arrived. You have the sign. By the way, we have the word. You want to know where Jesus is at? It's written of me. Lo, I'm written in the volume of a book. It is here. I've, you've got me. You can know him in a very personal, intimate way. But there's a little more to it than that, and that's why I'm parking the car on this for just a moment. The reason this is so important in the days in which we live is because it is important for us to pass God's word to generation to generation because there's coming a generation. Remember that word generation. Who will receive signs. And lying wonders that will be so convincing that even the the Jews themselves would be deceived if it wasn't for God's divine protection and grace and promises to a remnant, to a seed of Israel, as prophesied in Romans chapters 10 and 11. And this is clear. Second Thessalonians 2, New Testament now. We're not talking Old Testament. We're not talking types. We're talking what's coming. A generation of people who will not receive the message that I'm preaching, the message of this book, who will not take this Bible as what it says, the words of God as they are in truth, the very words of God. They'll deny the truth of God's word. They'll they'll, they'll put it aside. They'll set aside Jesus Christ. They'll set aside all of that for whatever reasons. And they'll harden their heart like Pharaoh. And yet they will still receive a sign. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Doesn't mean they're not religious. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Amen. He starts with the judgment. But look at verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and Lying wonders. Remember what I said? If you know Jesus, you're not looking for a sign. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because, why, because, why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You think God could have backed off on Egypt? Absolutely. Why didn't he? Because they wouldn't receive the love of the truth. In previous generations, God was gracious to Egypt. They, they blessed, he blessed Joseph. He blessed uh, Israel's seed. Why? Because they, they blessed God's people. 
The sobering reality is that there will be some among us who will reject the work of God wrought on the cross, but receive signs offered by a coming Antichrist. Now, I don't know the days or the hours, but I do know the times and the seasons. This is why it's so important to rightly divide and apply this book, the Bible. If you were here Wednesday night, Pastor Steve Fleshman did a great job of laying out how to rightly divide the Word of God. We took a night to say, hey, this is how you rightly divide. These are seven dispensations, so you can get your, you can get grip, you can get a handle on this story, this book, the great redemption story that God is offering about his kingdom is all laid out in a way that you can get your, your arms around it, so to speak, and you can have a framework. That's not something that Darby dreamt up or something that just came along since the 1800s, since the Baptists started up. No, no, man, this is the reality of the Bible from the time that God uh, uh, had it written down on the page, man. God has laid this out to the church from the first century, A.D. God has given us his Holy Spirit and his word and his church to make sure the story of redemption from Genesis through Revelation has generational impact. Now, I only got through point one, so we'll come back and get two and three next week. That's where we're going to stop today. I could rush through it, but we got to go. We got other things to do this morning. Let me leave you with this. Do you have a grip on this book? If not, why not? If not, why not? Is your story of redemption intersected with the story of redemption that Jesus Christ is, is written for us in this book, or are you? There's only two. There's only two ways, right? There's grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and then there's works. And so many people, they just keep working on that treadmill. Like, oh man, if I just try to be a better person, if I just keep trying, if I just keep trying, if I keep trying, the, the reality is, you got to quit trying, and you got to start trusting what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. You got to die. Died to self. When we get back next week, we're going to talk about, there's a question coming to Pharaoh in particular. Why won't you humble yourself before God? Getting a little ahead of myself. But that's the question on the table today. Why wouldn't you humble yourself before God? And this morning, I pray that if, if you're here and you're not saved, you need to get saved. If you're saved, you know what? That's the other, We can ask ourselves this question. What is it that we're holding on to? That we don't want to let go of. What in our life are we clutching that we won't let go of? That's hindering us from, from doing and being everything God has written of us in this book. And those are the things that we come to church to, to consider. The things that the Holy Spirit highlights in our hearts and our lives. And that is the reason we gather today. Because God wants you to take the story and invest it. Who is it today that God wants you to share the story of redemption with? Who is it that God wants to have peer into your life and say, wow, there's really something different about that, that couple. There's something different about that guy, that gal. What is it? And you have the opportunity to say, well, I'm glad you asked. It's not because of, I'm a good person. It's not because I go to church. It's not because, you know, I live in Cass County, right, or Jackson County or wherever county you live in, Henry County, Bates County. I don't, we don't even go there. So I'm just kidding about that. <clears throat> But you know the reality is it's about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.